In light of Mother's Day, I thought we'd start with some mother questions. Uh, uh, as you're reflecting on yourself as a son or a daughter to your mom, uh, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, if you're online, you can do this in your living room, but if you're here in our room, turn to someone next to you, and we'll start kind of easy. What is your favorite food that when your mom made it when she was alive or when your mom makes it these days, you just, you just can't wait? What is the favorite dish that your mother made for you? Turn to someone next to you and tell them what it was. Go. All right, food always brings out the conversation in people. It's great. I saw some sons sharing their favorite food with their mother. That's very good. On the count of three, we're all, we're all going to say our answer, everybody at the same time. Everybody ready? One, two, three. Blueberry buckle. All right, I had the microphone. Did everybody hear mine? I said blueberry buckle. Has anybody heard of blueberry buckle? It's basically a coffee cake, but there's blueberries in it, and there's like six inches of brown sugar and cinnamon on the top. And when my mom makes that, I mean, I need, a, I need insulin, but, uh, but it's delicious and I can't stop eating it. Thank you, mom. She makes so many great things, but I settled on blueberry buckle. She's watching from Ohio. Anyway, um, second question. Ready? This is kind of steers towards what we're going to talk about today. As you recall from childhood the things that your mother told you, what was the why saying that maybe she said once and it just stuck with you or she repeated it over and over again in such a way that it's stayed with you all of your life and it's been one of the things that God used her to shape in you the things that you're supposed to be. The wisest saying or the thing that you remember your mom reminding you the most. Turn and tell someone that uh, statement as, as we uh, continue this morning. <laughs> If you can't say it in church, just modify the, the words. <laughs> I saw some of you laughing. Oh, you guys are way more chatty than the first service. Way to go. All right. Anybody want to share? Just one of you want to share the wise saying your mother gave to you? Yeah, go ahead. What's yours? Mary Rich. <laughs> yeah. Rusty, you're rich in so many ways, brother. Mary Rich. It's a good one. You got one? I'll go ahead. What's yours? Yeah, uh, similar to her. My mother would always say, always put some money away from yourself. Always put some money away from yourself. This is a financially, uh, you know, angled uh, thing. Okay, I can't go to everybody. I hope you had a good one. Here's mine. Uh, I got this in several different forms in several uh, different instances. As mom was correcting me, disciplining me, this would almost always come up. She would say, you're not the only person in the world. Did anybody get that one from their mom? You think you're the only person in the world. Well, I'm here to tell you, right? And, and why did she have to do that? Because I did think that I was the only person in the world, and I lived as such. I did what was best for me, what suited me, what served me. That was my priority. And so normally when I was doing those things, it would go contra the rest of the family and the rest of the family's plans. And she would have to come to me, correct what I was doing. But then she went to the root of the problem, which was my perception of reality. I'm most important. 
What matters to me matters most. I know nobody in here ever struggles with that, but it's part of the human condition. I remember our kids, uh, when they were, you know, one, two, especially two, three, four years old, they are wired this way. Isn't it amazing that, like, whatever they want, they want, and they'll throw a fit until they get it, and even when you tell them no, 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 again and again and again. I remember my kids in just complete, you know, know, tears and fits and stuff, after 12 times of saying, no, you can't play with that, still going for it. What is that up? What is up with humans that they persist in such a way? I'll tell you what's up with humans. They don't want to hear what you have to say. They, want, they don't want to believe what you tell them to believe. What I want is what I want, and that has to be trained out of us. Now, we've been talking over the last couple of weeks in a series called No Offense. Uh, Tom uh, Eichem got up here last week and did a brilliant job talking about that guy. I'm so grateful that he was here to do that. If you haven't seen that sermon, you should go and watch it. It's super helpful in us understanding how to get over our, um, um, you know, assumptions about people and our, uh, our, our down thinking on who they are and what they're about. But uh, I'm going to continue, even on this Mother's Day, talking about this uh, because I think it's so important to us. And here's the premise of this uh, entire series. We're talking about these things, about no offense, because I believe that Scripture teaches that the people of God, those who have by, who have by faith received Jesus Christ and been you know, brought into life with God through him, uh, the people of God are to be the least offensive people in the world and the hardest to offend of all the people in the world. And some of you are thinking through that because that's what we do when we listen to anybody talk, preachers or otherwise, and you're asking yourself, do I agree with that? And let me, let me just make sure I clarify some things so that you're not stuck on that statement. I'm not saying that we don't stand up for our truth. Is everybody with me on that? We're just saying, I believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ the Son. We, we have what we believe. We hold to what we believe. And we, we don't waver from what we believe. I'm not saying uh, that we become kind of, you know, wishy-washy. I'm not saying that we're not outraged by sin and its effects. Sin should be uh, uh, offensive to us on some level, and we should come against the effects of sin, the choices of sin. We should you know, encourage and discipline and admonish and, and, and do all the things that we, we need to do so that we head in the direction that God has prescribed for us. I'm not saying uh, that we shouldn't work to right the wrongs, even in our, our greater world, and, and, and to be you know, involved politically and vote you know, correctly in the, in the things that would matter most to what God would have for his his people, his world. I'm not saying that we just kind of are doormats. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying that as we stand for our truth, we stand for it in love. We we stand for it uh, in ways that are the least offensive, even though they're offensive by their nature. We, We stand for them in ways that are the least offensive. We certainly, when other people disagree with us, don't return their hate and their vitriol with hate and vitriol. We love and we seek to be the least offended in the world. It, it, it all stems from the fact that if, if we're in the family of God, we've been saved from something and saved to something. Anybody ever heard that Christians have been saved, born again? Maybe you're kind of new to the story. Let me just explain what we mean by that. When we say that we're saved, we're, we're saying that we, we were, before we met Jesus, uh, not saved. We were in peril. We were, the Bible tells us, dead in our transgressions and our sins. And so when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are by that faith and through the grace of God saved from death and its penalty, from its curse, from its grip on our lives. 
I, I grew up watching uh, Saturday afternoon movies. There was a time, I know some of the youngers won't believe this, but there were three channels. Anybody remember back when there were three channels? There was no cable coming out of the wall. There was rabbit ears coming out of the top of a TV, tinfoil on top of that. And, uh, and if you wanted to watch something on Saturday afternoon, you had three choices. Uh, when I got the TV, I had two sisters. That was rare. But when I got the TV, I would watch the Tarzan movie. Does anybody remember watching the reruns of the Tarzan movie? This guy, Johnny Westmuller, or however you say his name, Weissmuller. Uh, he was an Olympic swimmer, but he became Tarzan. I can do the whole, oh, I can do the whole call for you if you want. Uh, but he, he swung from vines. He had a monkey, Jane, the whole thing, all right? And there was several Tarzan movies. But every one of the Tarzan movies I remember watching had the same scene in them. Uh, quicksand. Does anybody remember the quicksand scenes in the Tarzan movies? It's, it's not a big thing anymore. I, when I was a kid, I thought quicksand was going to be a thing. Like I had to watch out for the quicksand, right? Because in every Tarzan movie, people were falling into these muddy, boggy, you know, pits, and people would start just sinking into the quicksand. And, and invariably what would happen is that Tarzan would, you know, be told by some, I don't know, marsupial that, you know, someone is uh, going to sink into the, and he'd go, and there, there he'd be, the guy in the safari hat and the clean clothes, uh, and, and Tarzan would take the vine, and, and he would pull him out of the quicksand, right? And so as a kid, that was my first real connection with what it means when we, when we say spiritually that we are saved from the penalties, the curse, the, the effects of sin. Because sin has this, it has this stuckness to it. You're stuck in it. You can't get out of it. In fact, the harder you try to get out of it, the deeper you go in. You are powerless against the effects of sin. But by the grace of God, Jesus comes, dies, takes the penalty for your sin upon himself so that if whoever will believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Isn't that great? He saved us from our sin, but he saved us to a new life with him, a different way of living. We no longer have to be conformed to this world or the ways that it thinks. We can be transformed by the renewing of our minds, and we can live in a different way. He's given us um, his instruction book, his, his, his Bible is, 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 the, is the testament of who he is. His character is on display there. His son comes and in the Gospels of, of the New Testament, he, he lives a human life, an example for us to follow. As we gather every week, and I open it up with you, and, and we read the verses and we study it, we do so because we want to take this life that we've been given in Jesus and, and, and mold it over into his likeness to become like him to live this new life with him. Yesterday morning, I got back from a vacation Friday, and so great, uh, but I woke up Saturday morning, stack of mail, anybody come back from vacation? You got your stack of mail because it's been accumulating all week, I opened the mail in our house. And then next to the stack of mail was uh, a big box, big, big this, big, okay? And so I say, Eleanor, what's that? She says, that's your Saturday morning, something to that effect. <laughs> she says, that's my new shoe tower, She's, she's got, anybody seen this Mary Cho lady on, on Netflix? She like organizes, some of the ladies, yes. So she organizes everything. And so I, I don't know if Eleanor watched that, but she got inspired. She's cleaning out her closet and she decided to organize the shoes, which are typically scattered over the floor of our closet. She's going to put them in this new shoe tower. And as the shoe tower builder, it was my job to put that together. So I opened this thing up and it's 4,000 pieces. I'm not kidding. I counted them. It's 4,000 pieces. And is anybody else like this? When I, when I open something that has some assembly required, I just start assembling. 
I look at the picture, and I'm like, well, this probably goes here, and this probably goes here, and this will go. And, and uh, anybody want to get, and I'm all, I should mention, I'm also watching Netflix while I'm doing this. It's not, it's not giving my full attention. And so I get about 20, 30 minutes into this process. I need to get to work, and that's when I realize it's all wrong. Every piece is in the wrong place. I'm not building a shoe tower. It's going to be, you know, some other form. Uh, and, and so I start just taking everything apart again. And I actually look at the instructions. And I realize that this piece goes here and this piece goes here. And in fact, if I don't do this step first, those pieces aren't going to fit at all. And so eventually I get this rhythm going. Who's been there? Anybody ever built something and you're like, oh, okay, this is how. This is what we're doing. And, and then Eleanor comes out from, you know, what she was doing and she's like, can I help? And I'm like, yes, you can help. And so she's putting pieces together. And, 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 and together, in, in almost no time flat, we had this thing up and built. I should have brought a picture. It's amazing. Seriously, you'd be impressed. But it's all because... I finally looked at the instructions. I finally looked at what was meant to be, and instead of doing it my way, I did it the right way, and it became what it was supposed to be. That's, that, that's what it is to be saved to this new life with Jesus. That's why we hang out together on Sunday mornings, is that we are, uh, I pray, not just doing it to make mom happy this morning, come back and hang out and, and, and learn with us the way that life is meant to go because life with Jesus is the best life you can have. I guarantee it. It's not, not going to be a free skate. It's going to be hard. But it's the best life you can have. And the more you try to make your life yourself, the less your life is going to turn out like God intended it to be. I could summarize that last little bit, I'd say it this way. We have been saved by Jesus so we can act like Jesus. Not just so that we'd be free from sin. That's a great benefit. Not just so we can spend eternity with him in heaven. That's a great benefit. But here and now, our salvation, its chief practical purpose in the lives that we live is for us to live and act like Jesus lives and acts. Here's here's where we're going to get into the no offense stuff. Jesus, just so we're all clear, was the only human ever to truly live a completely righteous life. Never sinned. Raise your hand if you've sinned in the last hour. In the last five minutes. Raise your, keep them up. No, no, okay. Every one of us in here blows it on the regular. Jesus never did once. Perfect in every way. That's how he became our, the fitting sacrifice for us. He was a perfect sacrifice, a perfect human. But here's what happens with this perfect human. You read his story. You, you listen to the, the writers of the epistles comment on him, Paul, Peter. They all look back on his perfection, and they marvel at how even as the perfect one, he never came to relationships requiring perfection of those uh, in relationship with him. In fact, he was super patient with all the wrongs that he did life with, which was everybody he did life with, right? Now, he was firm where he needed to be, clear at times, but overall, if you had to describe our Savior, he was someone who was exemplified by patient humility and not impatient self-righteousness, even though, rightfully, he could have been as the perfect human so impatient with all the imperfects around him. I mean, think about it. He, he like, looked for the losers, chose them, called them out, finds them hiding in trees as he's walking through town and says, Zacchaeus, we're having lunch. He, he lets prostitutes anoint his feet with perfume and wipe it off with their hair. 
He goes to the, the tax collector's, you know, going away party. He, he asks one of those tax collectors to be a part of his elite club of 12. He's walking through Samaria, which is a place he's not meant to go as a Jew, and he doesn't just talk to a Samaritan, he talks to a Samaritan woman and, and doesn't ever once wag his self-righteous finger at her. He calls her out, but he calls her out so that she might move away from what she's been experiencing and into the freedom that he came to give. Who's grateful for a Jesus who, even though he's perfect, is humble with us and patient with us? Ever wonder why sinners flock to him? It's because he didn't spend his time pointing out all of their flaws, posting online about how they're wrong. He loved them despite their wrongs. Love was his message so often. The love of his father, his love for his children. He talks about it in John chapter 13. Jesus says this. He's getting ready to go to the cross. Uh, he's, he's on his way to his death, his resurrection 40 days later. He'll ascend into heaven and prepare a place for, this, uh, for those of us who have faith in him. But he says to his followers at the time, he calls them his little children. He says, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. He says, listen, I know you still don't get what's really happening here, but everything's going to happen according to God's plan, and I'm going to die and rise again, and, and just trust me. But he says, listen, even as you're trying to figure everything out, remember this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, I want you to love one another. And then he says this in verse 35, he says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, that you're my followers, if you love one another. Love is, is our sign, it's our logo, it's, a, it's the marker of the followers of Jesus Christ. Not judgment, not condemnation, not condescension, love. As I was driving back and forth from vacation, um, they have these signs on the side of the highway as you're getting closer to an exit that'll tell you what's available there at that exit. Uh, my eyes are conditioned now. As a coffee drinker, I started when I was 50 years old, and I have made up for lost time. I love coffee. And so I, I, I love all coffees, but if I can find me a Starbucks, I'm drinking there, right? And so I am attuned uh, to this logo. Does anybody, that's her, right? That's the girl. She's on the cup. She's on the sign. If I pull off here, I can get me some of her coffee, right? Now, when I was a little kid, it wasn't the Starbucks girl. Who was it? It was the Golden Arches, right? I mean, who was driving in the station wagon? The old one, right, where the seat in the back made you face the back window? And, and your, your sister would be in the, in the actual back seat, and she'd see the sign or see the arches. They were really smart. They would have them like on a pole sticking up from the exit, right? And, and you could see the arches from off. And then I don't know how this started, but every kid knew the chant, McDonald's, McDonald's. And you would just start chanting McDonald's until your father in exasperation said, fine, and pulls off and angrily feeds you nuggets. Anyway, uh... Those logos have power. That's why they have them. They, they want you to, when you see them, think, that's us. Uh, we could argue about what the logo for the Christians should be. Many would start with the cross. 
I think that's fine. I think it's certainly a fitting and uh, a, a right reminder of who we are in Jesus. But I would say that it's love. Maybe the heart, like when you send a heart when you're texting someone, hey, you want to go to you know, uh, uh, Julio's tonight or, uh, or whatever. Uh, love, yeah, send the heart. This is what I send when I send. Yeah, that's me in the heart, too. But the, <laughs> whatever, you do too. Anyway, uh, that's who we are. Christians. Now, if you're not a Christian in here and that's not your, been your impression of us, like if your impression of Christians has been uh, self-righteous, pious, um, d- divided, uh, off on our own, that, that's not who our Savior was. I'm sorry for that impression. I'm here to correct that if I can. And we as a church just want you to know if you go here, I want you to be known for your love. Now stand for the right things, but we should be the least offensive and the hardest to offend because we are the people of God's love. It's hard for us to stay there though because we're still people and we fall into what I call the better trap. The better trap, anybody uh, live by comparison here? I'm better than so-and-so. So I deserve this. You would never say this like out loud as you're making the argument. But, but as you're disagreeing with someone and trying to get your way, what you're really saying is my way is better. Ergo, I am better and you should serve me. A lot of times that's how it goes. When, it, when it's not like black and white, like you know, right and wrong, we really feel that what we think, that what we prefer is best. It's better. And so everybody should bend to me. It's not how God has drawn this up. You know, our enemy loves it when we get that way. Does everybody understand that our enemy, we call him Satan, Lucifer, Beelzebub, the devil. He's got lots of names. Uh, but he used to be an angel in heaven. And the way that he became Satan, became the enemy of God, is that he thought he deserved better. I should be worshipped just like God is worshipped. I should be on par with the God who created me. He convinced other angels to follow him and call them the demons. And they, they were cast out of heaven. When you open our Bibles, uh, he's there in the first three chapters in the garden with the createds that God had made, the, the, the man and the woman. And what does he convince them of? Hey, you know what? You've got everything, but you deserve better. And if you would just disobey God and eat of this fruit, you'd have better. And so at the heart of sin, at the heart of self and the worship of self is this esteem for self, this sense that I'm better and I deserve more. What you're going to read through the scriptures is that God constantly comes against that. He's not saying that we're worthless. He's not saying that, uh, you know, he's created us to be nothing. But he's told us that even though we are created in his image, and even though he values enough, loves us enough to send his son to die for us, he wants us to stay low in our opinion of ourselves. It's the people who get high on themselves who become the most offended in life. Jesus tells this uh, great parable, and I'll close with this today. In Luke 18, uh, he's uh, already taught one parable on prayer. The first eight verses uh, talk about uh, how we should be persistent in prayer. Uh, following the portion that we're going to study today in Luke 18, Luke tells a story of how uh, some, some people were bringing young children to Jesus for him to pray for them and bless them. And the disciples were saying, no, get those kids out of here. And on the heels of a, a parable that's going to teach us to be humble, Jesus says, guys, I just got done teaching you about this. 
Bring those kids to me. In fact, if you don't become like one of these kids, if you don't humble yourselves like one of these children, you'll never sniff the kingdom of heaven. That story is immediately followed by another account. Luke puts the story of the rich young ruler right after that. And that's the story of this young guy who comes up to Jesus and says, what do I got to do to be saved? Jesus says, well, you keep all the commands. And this guy confidently says, done it, nailed them all. And then he says to him, well, then you go and you sell everything and you follow me. And the guy can't do it. He was too wrapped up in himself and the things that he had acquired to truly surrender everything and follow Jesus. Jesus speaks to us about humility when he talks about this Pharisee and this tax collector starting in verse 9. He was there and he told this parable, it says in verse 9, to some who trusted in themselves. Invariably, we can assume these were uh, the Pharisees. Could have been others too, but... uh, these Pharisees were the, the, the one percenters in the Jewish faith. They were the, the keepers of all the rules, the, the most assured of their righteousness. And so he tells this parable to those who were present, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. I think Luke could have even added one more word there. They trusted them in themselves that they were righteous, and therefore they treated others with contempt. If you're really high, you can only look down your nose at the people that you see as low. So Jesus wanted to affirm the value that he had for humility when he tells this story. Verse 10, he begins, two men went into the temple to pray. Temple had three courts. There was a court of the Gentiles. If you weren't Jewish, that's where you had to stop. There was a court of the women, ladies back then. You weren't allowed into the the deepest part of the temple, the court that was for the men of Israel. Um, But that's where this guy is. This Pharisee goes into the courts of Israel, the altars up there where all the uh, sacrifices would be made on behalf of Israel. He goes, it says, and he stands by himself. He stands up, uh, most scholars think, closest to the altar. If the altar's up here, he's facing this. But he's looking back over his shoulder at everybody everybody else who's looking at him. Look at how holy I am. I'm right up here by the front. And he starts to pray. He prays out loud. The Pharisees were wont to do this. They like to have everybody hear them pray and know just how holy they were. Starts out okay. He starts his prayer and he says, God, I thank you. Everybody here who agrees that we should thank God for things, raise your hand. All right, good. I think it's a good practice. God's given us what we have. Let's start off, you know, most of our prayers by thanking God for what he's blessed us with. But things quickly turn. He says, I thank you that I. The emphasis is going to move away from God and what he's done pretty quick. It's going to be put on, the spotlight's going to be put on himself. I thank you that I am not like other men. I'm superior, morally higher than the extortioners. There's some guys, Lord, in business who are just cheats. But that's not me. Thank you that that's not me. In essence, he's saying, hey, God, I'm great. I don't extort. Hey, God, I'm great. I'm not unjust. He's talking about the, the, the lawbreakers, the, the Mosaic law of, uh, non-followers. I'm just. I do the right things. He says, I'm, I'm faithful. Thank you that I'm, I'm, not just, uh, not an, I'm not an extortioner, I'm not unjust, and I'm not an adulterer. I don't cheat on my wife. There's guys out there who do. Thank you that I'm not them. And then, from his position, facing the altar of God and his prayer, He maybe just kind of pivots like I sometimes do, and he sees him. 
He's in the back corner. It's the tax collector. And he points even maybe, and he says, and I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. Now, people who are hearing Jesus tell this story, the minute he said Pharisee, they're all like, yay, because he's a hero in their minds of this story. And when they hear the name of the tax collector, they're all like, boo, because tax collectors were the worst. The Jews hated the tax collectors. The Romans had come in and then occupied the territory that Israel was a part of, and, and they had enforced the taxes of Caesar upon the Jewish people. There were three levels. There was Caesar and the governing uh, seat itself. There was a regional uh, tax collector who was appointed by Caesar, and then that tax collector went to the Jewish people and pulled from the Jewish people some men who would be the boots on the ground, the actual door-to-door tax collectors. Here's how it would work. Rome got it, its cut. This percentage was coming to Rome. This guy could add whatever he wanted on top of what Rome required. So the second guy got paid. And then if you, wanted, if you were the Jewish tax collector, the way you would make your money, no salary, is you would rob your fellow citizens of whatever you desired from them with the protection of Rome and its soldiers behind you, and that would be your salary. And so no wonder these guys were hated. No wonder they were kicked out of synagogues and not allowed to worship with the other Jews. Every Jewish man had a right to the temple. And so it's here that the scene is set. And the Pharisee says, thank you, God, that I'm not like him. And the scene turns to the tax collector. But first, the Pharisee gives his stats. Everybody see that in verse 12? I fast twice a week. It was the habit of the Pharisees to fast on Mondays and Thursdays. Most of them, uh, just a little slice of bread in the morning and water for the rest of the day. I don't know what you're going to eat this afternoon, mostly on Mother's Day. We eat well, don't we? No, but these guys, twice a week, nothing except a slice of bread. He said, uh, not only do I fast twice a week, but I give a tithe, the tenth, back to the temple, not just of what I've earned, but of all that I get. Some of the scholars I read this week thought, hey, whatever this guy got, like if someone, you know, uh, gave him a gift, you know, like we gave mothers today. If, 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 if you were a Pharisee mom, you would go inside the gift and you try to calculate in your head, okay, a drink and the socks, I don't know how much those are, they're very nice. Or, uh, you know, and you try to figure out the amount of, of the gift and then you would say, I'm going to tithe on that because I can't trust that whoever got this gift for me, that they've tithed on it. I've got to make sure that God gets his tells us in uh, Matthew that uh, the Pharisees would actually tithe off the spices in their spice rack. So they'd actually give a tenth of their dill and their cumin and their paprika. Yeah, they were, they were fastidious, hyper-aware, above and beyond rule followers. And this Pharisee's up there saying, I'm so glad I'm not like him. I'm all this. Jesus turns his attention to the tax collector. In verse 13, it says this, but the tax collector standing far off, barely in the room. I picture him in a dark corner. He's not even lifting his eyes to heaven. He's so contrite, so broken. He's beating his chest. This was a sign in the Jewish culture of, of just remorse. If you, someone died, you would put on sackcloth and ashes, and you would just weep and cry in remorse and beat your chest. And here's this man, tax collector. He knows who he is. 
And he stands in the corner of the temple and he prays this prayer out loud, perhaps at the same time as this Pharisee is given his stats. And he just says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I usually agree with the English Standard Version. That's the, that's the version in, in English that we study from here at our church. Uh, this is the one time that I don't. They've, they've missed a word. The, the word sinner here is preceded by the definite article, the. So it should be have mercy on me or be merciful to me, the sinner. I think that raises the bar a little bit. Like the people who go to the Ohio State University, give me a break. Anyway, uh, it's just Ohio State, okay? But they're pretty proud of the Ohio State. And when you put a the in front of something, you're, you're, you're denoting you know, superior. In this case, the sinner is I'm the worst of sinners. Paul actually uses the same phrase of himself when he describes uh, sinners. He says, I am the chief of sinners. That's our Apostle Paul. Came pretty close to living in the humility that Jesus prescribes for us. Even though he was used by God to plant churches and write big chunks of your Bible, he still never got out over his skis. He stayed low like this tax collector was. The tax collector's quoting the first lines of a psalm, a familiar one. Psalm 51 is the psalm that David writes after his sin with Bathsheba, uh, the woman that he committed adultery with. He had her husband killed. It's a long story. It's in 1st, 2nd Samuel. You can read it all there. Uh, but uh, he, he's found out. His sin is brought to light, and he is contrite. He is broken. And he sits down, and he pens Psalm 51. It goes like this. Have mercy on me, O God according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions and wash away all my iniquities and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sins are always before me. This is the big part. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right. See, here's what was going on with these guys. The Pharisee was using lateral comparison to uh, assess his righteousness. I'm better than the extortioners. I'm better than the unjust. I'm better than the adulterers. I'm certainly better than Bill the tax collector back there. And when we do that, we'll always be inferior uh, to someone. We'll always be superior to someone. And we never actually get on the track that God wants for us because he's not even involved. The tax collector understood different. When he prayed, he didn't talk about everybody else. He just said, have mercy on me, O God. I'm the sinner. He had a vertical comparison. When we fail to look to God as our, as our standard and we use each other instead, we're, we're, we're going to be prone to offense. We're going to be prone to um, you know, feeling uh, self-righteous, deserving of some worship. Jesus goes on and he says this, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He loves to talk that way, doesn't he? The first shall be last, the last shall be first. The humble will be exalted. The exalted in their own hearts will be humbled. 
I, I put together this little chart, like pride and humility, right and wrong. Let's just all agree that the, the worst on this chart would be the prideful wrong. If you're just out there, you know you're wrong, you don't care, and you're like, God, <laughs> you're lost. You, God needs to help you, and, and by God's grace, I know many of you, you were there, and he steered you out of it. Who's grateful for that? Anybody grateful for that? God's good. All right, but that's probably the worst spot to be in. The best spot, the other end of the you know, spectrum, is the humble right. That's who... Jesus is, is pointing to, he says, I, I, I want you to be humble and right. I want you to do the right things, but I want you to stay low. And then he brings up the Pharisee and the tax collector in this parable, and he says, okay, so we got the proud right and the humble wrong. And Jesus says, which ones, or which one do you think is the one that God justifies or prefers? And he makes it very clear, the humble wrong. He can work with that. You can do everything right. And if you see that your righteousness that you've done for yourself somehow elevates you, first of all, you're not justified before God, just justified before the mirror. And if you live in relationships, you're going to be a hard one to deal with because <laughs> you're going to think you deserve. I'm not this. I'm not that. I'm not that. I'm not a tax collector. I deserve you ever notice that when people get in a fight, they detail the other person's wrongs? Oh, yeah, well, you did this, ba 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 Yeah, but I did that because you did this, ba 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 And it's like a righteousness fight, hurling righteous grenades at each other. I'm more righteous. I'm better. I'm better. I deserve. You're wrong. I'm right. What happens when those people finally lay down those bombs and just say, you know what? I'm wrong. And the other one says, I'm wrong. In humility, they seek peace, and they reconcile, reconcile, and they, yeah, it's what God wants. That's why he says things like in 1 Peter 4, I'm going to go to that one. He says in 1 Peter 4, verse 8, he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers over a multitude of sins. He's not saying that love uh, puts us in positions of denial, and we're just, you know, we need to deal with things in truth, and we need to head, you know, or, or face things head on and talk about things when people are hurting us. We need to share those things. But what love does is it puts us in a position to readily forgive. It's this, like, cover. It's this wrapping around any situation, any strife that we face, that when we come to it, you know what, we're, we're eager to find solution. We're ready to forgive. No matter how often this person hurts us, whether it's our kid's mom or someone else in our lives, we're just in this posture of love, and that love is this wrapping around the whole situation so that when finally the opportunity arises, forgiveness can enter into the situation and things can be right. That's why Jesus is hanging on his cross. He's dying He's looking out over those who are executing him. They've nailed him to his, 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 his cross. He's, he's, he's dying in front of them, and he says this in a prayer to his father. What does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, he, he wasn't absolving um, those uh, of, of sin. He wasn't securing everybody's eternal destiny by saying that. He's just saying, hey, God, be ready to forgive these guys. If, if some of my friends actually share my gospel with them, don't hold the fact that they crucified me against them. Forgive them. Because that's who our God is. Oh, can you hear me on this? Our God loves us. He loves you. 
And if you're off the ranch with him, if you're away from him, he is desirous of reconciliation with you. He loves you. He's the prodigal father sitting on the porch just waiting for you to come home. He's going to run out in the street and meet you and hug you and wrap you in his robe and celebrate your return. He's loving you. Why? Because love is ready to forgive. Love is ready to restore. Oh, that we would bring that love to our relationships and become the least offensive and the hardest to offend people in the world. All right, that's all I got. We're going to close today singing that song that we sang right before I preached about a good, good father who's given us his love. May we give his love to each other in return. Stand with me as we sing. God, we affirm that you are good and that uh, uh, you are, are good to us because you love us. Uh, you demonstrated your love for us and that while we were still sinners, you sent Christ to die for us. Uh, you, you love us uh, uh, when we run from you. you. You come running after us and, and uh, you are ready to forgive and restore. Help us to be that kind of person in our homes, in our relationships. Help us instead of uh, adding gas to the fire to, uh, to, to, to let love cover over a multitude of sins. Uh, God, I want to pray for moms today. Uh, thank you for them. Thanks for giving each of us our moms, whether she's still here or not. Um, for the mothers who are here and listening to me pray, I pray today's a blessed day that they enjoy their time with their families. I pray that you continue to use them in the lives of their children. Um, uh, that they would, if uh, they're waiting for some kid to come back to you, that they'd be patient and not uh, grow weary in doing good in the lives of their kids. That they'd continue to love and, uh, and wait for your work to be realized in the hearts of their sons and daughters. Uh, that's my prayer on this Mother's Day. Thank you, good Father, for the love you give us. Help us to give it to each other. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. Moms, happy Mother's Day. God bless you as you go. Have a great week.